from the dark web to your radio dial. You are listening to CyberTalk Radio on News 1200 WOAI. to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran, and we're talking about the Intelligence Security Group at Texas State University this week with a professor on the staff there. I will uh, let Dr. Gerges introduce himself here in a moment and share his background and kind of how he found his way to Texas State and, and what got him excited about uh, cybersecurity and what made him go get a, a PhD in this kind of stuff. So if you're going to be able to stick with us on the radio here, uh, we're going to talk about this uh, for the next hour, some of the things they're working on there at Texas State, some of the programs. So if you've got a a student in your family that's thinking about where to go to college and and thinking about cybersecurity programs, this is going to be a great way to learn. Uh, about what Texas State is up to. Uh, If you're a professional in the area thinking, you know what, maybe I want to get into the cybersecurity industry, here's a a great way to learn about that. If you won't be able to stick with us on the radio for the full broadcast here, you can uh, listen to the rebroadcast of this. Uh, It'll go up on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com on Tuesday, December the 8th. Uh, It'll also go up onto every podcasting service, at least we sure hope so. If, If you have a podcasting service you prefer to listen to and you cannot find CyberTalk Radio on there, reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter. We will add our program and we will get you a CyberTalk Radio t-shirt for finding yet another podcasting service. For any college students out there that want a free t-shirt, if you want to figure out how to start your own podcasting service uh, and then let us know we're not listed, we will get you a t-shirt for setting up your own podcasting service. So uh, thank you uh, very much for joining us this week. And uh, we'll go ahead and share with folks just to start off a little bit about your background. How did you, you find your way to, to Texas State? Uh, so first, uh, thanks for having me uh, on the show. Uh, so uh, I got my PhD from Boston University, and at the time I was very interested in uh, network security, and this is where my dissertation uh, uh, topic was. And uh, after I finished my PhD at, uh, at Boston University, I applied different places, and uh, Texas State was uh, sort of the one of the best places that uh, I had an interview, and uh, I liked it here. Yeah, yeah. There's a ton going on here from a, an education perspective. So, uh, so you came down to Texas State in 2006. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And when you you were there as as part of the computer science department. Correct. And and so where did Texas State evolve into offering and and going towards the cybersecurity path? So uh, the university actually has went through a lot of change uh, since 2000 and. 4,005 by sort of uh, uh, hiring uh, faculty who do research in various areas. And at the time when I went there, there was already uh, some uh, faculty doing research in cybersecurity. Uh, and we had a group, maybe of five faculty members doing research in, in, in this area. And um, and this is how it all started. Uh, so over, over the past I would say 10 years, we have became an emerging research institution. Uh, our sort of undergraduates now are around 1,300 uh, students. So that's a good-sized computer science department. Yes, and la- just last year, we started having a PhD program. Uh, and we have the first sort of batch uh, of PhD students as well. 
So it's it's been growing it's growing a lot. So the the research that you're working on uh, is the Intelligence Security Group. That's right. Yes. Uh. So how did that research get started? Uh, so the, this group specifically started recently. Uh, I since I started at Texas State, we always had students working with me, uh, and the group actually has went through different name changes and different people. Uh, so typically I have between three and six students working with me. These are undergraduates or master's students. Um, the intelligence security group, the, the name came recently when we started applying uh, artificial intelligence and uh, machine learning to solve security problems uh, in the networking or the cyber physical systems domain. And that's where the name came. Okay. And and so as you say, you're starting to apply that and, and why is this uh, important to start looking at machine learning, artificial intelligence in the cybersecurity world? Uh, basically because the problems we look at are quite large for, uh, for, e for even computers to solve uh, optimally and correctly. Uh, many of these problems you have to account for the uh, adversary and also for the defender, what actions they have, what state they are currently in, and what possible st uh, actions they can take to go to the next state and so on. And as this, the, the states become large and the action spaces, spaces becomes large, it becomes very hard, it becomes intractable. So that's why we apply machine learning and AI techniques to, uh, to understand well, how, how do agents make the best decisions. Yeah, so if, if I were to, to go for our audience, like the, if you're playing checkers, computers are pretty good, you don't really, you can just exhaustively program the computer to play checkers the best. Uh, but if you get up to games like Go now, like that's starting to get kind of complicated. But um, knowing what I know about cybersecurity, it's more complicated than Go. Uh, absolutely. And the, also the difficulty comes in also because the, uh, the agents are not playing the same game. So they don't have the same actions. Yeah. So it's, it's quite different. Yeah. So yeah. explain to folks out in the audience, so as you, you mentioned an agent there, what is a, a, an agent inside the system as you guys as think about that and they can kind of understand how this, this works a little bit more? So there are different settings. And one of the settings we think of the agent as the administrator who's defending the system, trying to make sure that they have the right rules, the firewall rules, for example, or uh, they have the right checks within the sort of the, the system. And the attacker has at uh, their disposal a uh, few attack methods that they can uh, attack with. And usually the problem becomes constrained from the defender side because you cannot, you don't have enough resources to secure everything. Uh, and that's where sort of game theory comes into play where you think about uh, what we call mixed strategies playing uh, with the probability distribution so that it appears to the attacker as if you're doing some random defense, but actually this, this randomization is not random. It is, it is random, but in, in some sense it is uh, intelligent randomness. Yeah, so it just like in, in any of the board games, as you move up from checkers to chess to go, you've got, you'll make moves where the, the attacker, if you're thinking about playing a defensive strategy, that attacker is gonna look at that and go, I wonder why he's sacrificing that piece uh, and same thing in the, the cybersecurity world, you're going to make a move hopefully getting your attacker to expose themselves so that you can see who they are and then you can take other defensive measures against them. That, that's, that's right, yeah. Yeah, so sacrificing pawns ideally because you, you, as uh, you're saying, from a resource perspective, you can't put perfect defenses in place across every asset. Correct. So 
Um, this research, you know, you said has been going on for a little while. Is any of this grant funded? Uh, yes, we have grants from National Science Foundation, from DOD, from uh, the Air Force, uh, AFRL. Uh, we have from DHS. Uh, so, yeah, we do. Yeah, and uh, as, as you're going through uh, working on, on this, I guess you're, uh, you get to do uh, some course teaching, you get to do some, some research time uh, for the students that are in the computer science department that, at Texas State. This is the kind of opportunity, if they choose to go to school there, then uh, they will have a chance to be a research assistant on these type of projects. Yes, we actually encourage all students uh, to, uh, to join a research lab with some of the faculty members. And uh, over the summers, we have been running REU programs, research experience for undergraduates. And actually, we're going to start one uh, next summer with uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Metzis. It's about smart cities. And uh, my group will, will be working on uh, problems related to uh, autonomous driving, securing autonomous driving. Uh, because again, these, these problems have this uh, sort of uh, the security relation with networks and control how you make decisions in noisy or adversarial environments yeah as anyone uh, as everyone knows i guess uh, you when you're driving to work um, all the cars are not cleanly following a nice set of rules it's very easy to program software if everyone's going to behave in a consistent and known manner uh, it's very difficult to program software to deal with um, corner cases so this is where the the ai and machine learning comes in on the the self-driving uh, piece of things is that for someone to sit down and exhaustively write out code for every single corner case would be impossible. That's right. And more so, actually, uh, I worry more about patches and what if there's a malware in a patch or somebody gets, you know, uh, a piece of malicious uh, yeah. software on, on the car itself. Yeah, so instead of driving to avoid running over grandma on the sidewalk, the malware will use the car sensors to find grandma and drive towards her. <laughs> That's the, that's the malware. I mean, we're worried about that sort of stuff. And we've had a, course, a, a yeah. guest on the, the program where we, we went into some of the ethics around programming software for self-driving cars. If you are out there in the listening audience and want to go down a bit of a rabbit hole on that one, you can look that up. Uh, the guest was uh, Van Lindbergh. He's an attorney in the IP space. And we, we went uh, through the, the dilemmas and all the, the ethics there and the, the software because there's decisions we make each day as a driver of a car. If you had um, somebody jump out in front of you, um, into the street, you could choose to potentially hit them, you could choose to hit a pole, or you could choose to swerve to the sidewalk and maybe hit other people. And how do you, you make that decision if you're a software engineer? How do you, you program the value weighting on which of those things hurt the driver, hurt the person that jumped into the street, or hurt the people on the sidewalk that were innocent bystanders before you swerved the car? Yes, we these topics we uh, we assign them in my in our ethics class. Yeah. <laughs> so in, in your computer science, you guys have as uh, your um, teaching, I guess, with artificial intelligence, machine learning. You guys are, are discussing the ethics of that as well. Uh, so ethics is a different class where students uh, sort of discuss topics like this. But in our in our classes, we usually we uh, we stick to the sort of the technical content, uh, especially in upper level. Like uh, I usually teach like networks and operating systems, and uh, we. We maybe briefly we can go into some ethics, but usually it's it's yeah, not save yeah. that for for uh, yeah, the separate courses. But it's good to hear that uh, ethics are I mean, getting into thinking about some of these cutting edge areas in universities. Where when I took ethics, it felt like it was all um, I'm old now, so 
but we didn't talk about any of this stuff because the internet barely existed. You're listening to 1200 WAI. This is CyberTalk Radio, and we're talking about the Intelligence Security Group and the computer science programs at Texas State University, some of the cybersecurity things going on there. If you uh, just turn the radio on right now, you can listen uh, to this on our website. It'll go up on Tuesday, December the 8th at www.cybertalkradio.com. Picking our discussion back up as uh, where, uh, I mean, you guys are doing research now on machine learning, artificial intelligence, and cybersecurity. Uh, it's pretty tricky for the, the defenders. Um, where, are, from a, a research perspective, kind of on the maturity curve, is this super early stage stuff, or is there research that um, people in the, the private sector should start thinking about how to apply this into to actual deployed systems? Uh, so, because uh, I know things go from very early stage on through to where um, you're doing refinements, maybe even a, the, the optimization type of research. Uh, so where is this from experimental to optimization? That's a very good question. So uh, in our group, actually, we apply uh, machine learning and AI. So we don't develop like new algorithms for uh, machine learning or, or AI. However, the, the problem usually in security or in cybersecurity is how to get the sort of the, if we're using like a deep uh, neural network, how to set the parameters, how to make sure that this is reflecting actually the, the, the state and the actions played and the, the rewards obtained. Um, so definitely there is uh, there's a lot of interest in, in machine learning and AI, and we're, we're applying it to cybersecurity. Yeah, so I, I guess for those that um, aren't familiar with uh, those topics at, at all. Um, you mentioned a, a deep neural network. So from applying AI and machine learning algorithms that are out there and available, how do you, you teach the, the students to decide, do you use a, a neural network for this or do you use something else different? So I'll, I'll, let, so I'll let the students do the research. Um, so these are students who are interested in, in applying machine learning and uh, I, I describe to them the problem, the challenges, and uh, I let them do the research and come up with. So we, we know, for example, for some problems, we know what is the optimal solution, and we can compare uh, different networks to this optimal solution uh, on small-scale problems. And yeah. once we figure out, oh, this, is, this architecture is good, then we can apply it to large problems where we actually don't have an optimal solution. Um, so there is, a, there is a big trial and error to it, uh, and that's why it takes time, and there's a computational problem also uh, price to pay. Uh, these problems take uh, you know days and sometimes weeks to uh, to get some results and, uh, yeah. and in some cases these results were may not be as good as we expect and we have to uh, tune uh, the network and try again. Yeah so I mean this goes back to when I was doing computer science stuff 20 years ago we were working on compression algorithms or, or routing algorithms and trying to decide um, could you come up with a, a better way or could you apply certain things that already existed out there, sorting or other types of, of algorithms to certain problem sets? And uh, you guys are moving to uh, applying where, like with a small system, uh, and we can use for an example for listeners out there in the audience. So if, if you have uh, the traveling salesman problem, this is like where you've got someone's got to go visit a whole set of cities. If it's eight cities, like you could sit down and you could figure out the optimal path very easily. Um, by just brute forcing it. Like, you don't really need much of an algorithm to do that. As you start to get, though, if you have this much more complicated route um, in a very large number of destinations, then that's 
one where you need to it's it's very hard to figure out what is the optimal route at that point if you were going to go brute force it with a massive number of destinations it's very inefficient um, and that's so those are like finite problems where you can try to come up with better ways to get to the exact solution you just have to go all the way through and that's super time consuming super compute resource intensive for large numbers as you get to uh, areas where uh, though you're you're okay with a solution that's 90% accurate so can you come up with an algorithm a way of something with the computers to where you can say we've got a high level of confidence that this is within 90% the best way for the salesman to go hit all of the the different destinations they have so that's a kind of you, it sounds like you guys are using some of similar things on the the AI for the cybersecurity you've got a, a small well-defined problem you train the the system on that small well-defined problems because you can measure the optimal or just go brute calculate the optimal output and then expose it out to larger systems and see if it's still successful that's correct and we rely a lot on approximation how you approximate uh especially when you have large games how can you cluster them how can you figure out uh that these actions would be still good in this group of states although you cannot really uh sort of enumerate all of them because yeah. there's so many of them uh, yeah. So yeah, we rely a lot on approximations. Yeah. So as as you're um, going through and, and thinking about this, so from a, a network security perspective, for those not super familiar with with networking components, what are the kind of things that you're um, looking for? What are the sort of things that these systems are being trained um, with from a data feed perspective? In order to train a, an AI or a machine learning system, you have to have a, a training set of data that you um, feed into right. okay. the model so that it can learn from something so how are you guys going about like and what sort of information from a, a, a data set perspective are being um, given to these models to learn uh, so there are different kinds of, of learning and uh, one of them is uh, we actually uh, let the agent start by with a very simple strategy like a random strategy and as they play they observe the rewards they get and then we can start, so these are like Monte Carlo uh, uh, search trees, for example, yeah. where they run different episodes and figure out what's the reward and then use this as to improve, to come, to come up with the next policy and so on. Um, that's and, and sometimes we start with uh, what we call rollout strategies that we think it's good, these could be heuristics, and we let the algorithms improve upon themselves. So I, I guess I'm, well, I'm, I'm hearing maybe it's like you're letting the AI decide how to what rules to put in the firewall policy, that so, sort of thing. Uh, so from network security, uh, well, it's a little bit different. Uh, the, the, the problems that we worked on in network security are a little bit different than the ones we use for like cyber physical systems, which I'm talking about. So can you give me a, an example of a, a problem or a, kind of a, an asset that you're training these models to protect? Uh, yes, yeah, so uh, there's a lot of interest now on industrial control systems. Uh, you want to protect them like uh, in factories or even like yeah. utility companies. Yeah, like we all love grid. our electricity being on. Exactly. Uh, so these, these systems, we refer to them as cyber, cyber physical systems and... Uh, so usually you have the plant and you have sensors and these sensors sends measurements to some control center and these control centers observe these uh, measurements and then take actions, choose the controls and these controls uh, again go through perhaps a network to the actuator where you actually adjust the plant. And there's a lot of interest on how you make sure that you're receiving the right sensors, uh, the right sensor data, the right control data. Um, 
So uh, you, you need to protect them. You want to want to make sure that these are protected and uh, there is no uh, somebody who can attack the network and spoof these measurements, or even if they're encrypted, somebody with uh, with the key or with a virus can actually manipulate these values and cause the the plan to operate in a completely different uh, sort of opera- operating regime. Yeah, you so could, you could overheat a boiler. Exactly. You could, yeah, you could cause a physical <laughs> failure at the at the facility if it has if you're feeding bad data in yes. um, as an attacker, and then the, you're making decisions on even if it's a manual operator. If the manual operator is getting bad data, um, that's complicated. Or if you have bad data going into an automated operator, then you could have changes that get made. And this, these are the the things that we're worried about on the the industrial systems. Exactly. It's funny you mentioned the boiler because we have like a miniature. Uh, a, a real setup with a, with a small boiler that actually generates uh, steam that turns a turbine and generates electricity. Well, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, this is one of the... So you guys have your own little mini power plant that you get right. to, to, to actually operate. <laughs> you can have analog measurement devices and you can have digital measurement devices and you can have automated control changes and you can have manual control changes. So yeah, I guess you guys can, in your research lab there, really simulate kind of at a, a small scale level, all of the the challenges that people are really facing running a, a power plant these days. Exactly, and and the the community has been developing a lot of uh, sort of checks and defense mechanisms for making sure that these are the right signals being propagated. Uh, the problem uh, is that these defenses they take time to operate, and when you have a real time system like you know power generation plant, yeah, uh, you, you have to be careful how many checks you do. Uh, and that's why that's where randomization comes in into play. That you, you may not have all the defense uh, running at the same time, just to make sure that you don't violate any of the delay constraints in the control loop. Yeah, because yeah, if, if the boiler really is overheating, then you need to make some adjustments on the fuel source um, in a timely manner. Exactly. Like, yeah, you can't wait around to to check too many times to make sure that 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 temperature data is one hundred percent accurate. Absolutely. So with, without the aid of a, an intelligent uh, computing system to help folks, uh, are they facing like resource constraints on the personnel side? Are these systems just producing so much data now? Or uh, like what's the, the kind of driver on the, the private sector side to be able to apply this research? So definitely there is usually the defender is the one more constrained. Uh, in terms, even if you look at... Uh, uh, some of the problems that happen with uh, response teams. Yeah, any organization would have many, for example, attacks happening on their network, and somebody has to go and look for, uh, uh, look at these uh, alerts that are being generated. Yeah. Their, uh, and usually the, these these people are very uh, time constrained. There's so many attacks that, or some potential attacks that they have to uh, look for. Uh, so this is a typical problem uh, that happens in, in in many organizations. Yeah, it's an interesting one for, for folks uh, in most um, domains. And so cyber, if you think of it just as a, a place where you can commit good acts, bad acts, you have the things to attack and defend, um, it's much less expensive to be an attacker than it is a defender. Um, defending is much more expensive, wherein many other um, kind of fields of whether it's warfare or cyber espionage or just criminal behavior, it's much more expensive to be the attacker than it is the defender. So. Uh, this is where, uh, unless the defenders can become very efficient, if they can, in, if they can, the uh, unless the de- defenders can become very efficient uh, by using technology that's more advanced than the attacker, 
then the that cost asymmetry really favors the the attackers in a, a cyber system. Uh, we're going to go ahead and take a uh, quick break here at the uh, bottom of the hour for news, traffic, and weather. Uh, if you're listening to us on 1200WAI or uh, iHeart Streaming and the 1200WAI channel there, if you're listening to the uh, recording of this uh, on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com or your favorite podcasting service, uh, we will be uh, back in just an instant there. Uh, but that news, traffic, and weather update won't take too long, and we're going to continue uh, conversations about cybersecurity, some of the uh, applied research uh, that's going on up at, at Texas State, and, and just some of the, the history of kind of how this may differ on an industrial system versus network security in other areas. So we will be right back here after this break. Welcome back to Cyber Talk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. And I'm joined this week uh, by Dr. Mina Gerges from Texas State University in the computer science department there. We've been talking about some of the research he's working on and uh, some of the other things going on up there at Texas State. If you uh, just turn the radio on right now, you can listen to the rebroadcast of this uh, via podcast or our website at www.cybertalkradio.com on Tuesday, December the 8th. Uh, CyberTalk Radio is a weekly program uh, that airs on Saturday nights pretty typically, uh, but sometimes uh, there's sporting events that go on on 1200 here uh, that will move the program. Uh, but uh, our uh, podcast and uh, blog post and the rest of that about uh, each of the programs will go up on Tuesday mornings, uh, so you can find those. Uh, if you pop in by lunchtime onto the website, you'll see the new episode there, and you can uh, listen and uh, stream as you please via podcasting. So. Uh, before the, the break, uh, we kind of talked a little bit about uh, some of the industrial control system and uh, the risks and challenges uh, that they're facing uh, to run our, our power plants. Uh, they've doing research in that called the Intelligent Systems Group, uh, working on those kind of problems. But uh, you've got a background as well in some of the, the network security. And so securing computing networks, how does that uh, different than a kind of industrial control system? Um, securing networks uh, in general is, is a much older sort of uh, topic uh, than what we see now with the Internet of Things and cyber physical systems. Uh, so it's much more sort of mature uh, in some sense. Uh, so if, if you're talking about just regular network, uh, it may not impact uh, your physical world. Yeah, uh, that's the main difference. And of course, if networks is used in a cyber physical systems, then it, it would impact the, the physical world. And that's where all the new things are. Um, so we worked a little bit on uh, network, uh, on wireless interference. Yeah. Uh, especially now with uh, uh, smart buildings that can adjust uh, sort of the wireless uh, range of their access points based on uh, people in the, in the building and uh, um, also interference uh, among themselves. 
uh, it's uh, we, we exposed attacks where somebody can plug in uh, an access point um, basically exploiting the topology of the network uh, in, in sense that it uh, can uh, interfere with one access point and this access point is a smart access point that would change its channel and by changing its channel it can trigger uh, a sequence of channel changes that can keep for some time and once sort of the attack ceases the attacker can choose a different channel and repeat this attack so in essence the attacker is exploiting the way uh, the network is connected to uh, to cause interference all the time yeah because i think it was most people think about wireless out there for the the non super technical listeners um they just see the wireless networks have a name um well like we have uh whatever you call it, uh, office guest. And this office guest, that's the name you see, but these the behind the scenes, the the devices are broadcasting out on different frequency bands that are, that are broken into channels. Correct, yes. And some of them are, uh, they don't overlap. Some of them overlap. So you have to yeah. be careful which one you choose. But now with, uh, with the work on software-defined networks and uh, intelligent, sort of they, they can adjust by themselves. Yeah, and if you, you have systems that aren't smart and don't adjust by themselves, uh, the the way wireless works is the uh, the the loudest signal wins. So if if you've got a legitimate device that is broadcasting Office Guest, and I'm a an evil hacker, and I plug in my Wi-Fi hotspot, and I've got a stronger signal than you do. Uh, then you're gonna you're gonna see my evil fake office guest, and you're not gonna see the the real office guest network. Uh, you can think about it like if, you, if you're listening to us on the AM radio, you had this when you're turning the radio dial, and you'll you're driving from one place to the other, and all of a sudden you're staying on the same frequency, but it actually cuts over to a, a different radio station. So the radio is the same way there for listening. Uh, the loudest signal wins, and your radio is gonna broadcast the loudest signal. Your computer does the same thing with with Wi-Fi networks, and that opens up a, a whole set of uh, interesting attack problems. Right, and, and this is some of the problems we looked at, and actually this was uh, a collaborative uh, project with uh, George Atiyah from University of uh, Central Florida. So we looked at these wireless uh, interfering uh, attacks, actually, identifying them. How, how, how do you make sure that the topology is, is resilient against these attacks? Yeah, or at a minimum, aware of them. Exactly. Yeah, if you're if you're running a, a wireless network in a large university campus in an office building, um, you can't physically inspect uh, and see all of the the people that are connecting to it at all points in time. You can't see um, physically like does somebody have a bad broadcasting device in a backpack or all these sorts of things. So, in small scale systems, the problem's pretty easy to constrain. Like you can see in your office if you've got a small office, your own standalone building, you you can control that pretty well. But as soon as you get out into these larger systems, whether it's industrial control systems with lots of sensor inputs and lots of outputs and lots of controls to adjust, it it becomes to a point where you start to need to use AI, machine learning, or lots and lots and lots of programmers to handle every corner case uh, to, to solve for these systems. That's right. Yeah. So uh, we've been talking through some of the, the research that you guys are, are working on there at Texas State. But I want to uh, backpedal for the listeners in our audience that are like they, I think many folks out there hear computer science, and that just means software development, software programming to them. And I, like from my perspective, a computer science degree, you you're going to learn some programming while in that, but that's not the the goal or the purpose of the degree. So, 
um, uh, so you, you were saying you teach some classes in networking and, and operating systems that as you, you're going through um, in computer science, uh, uh, data structures, uh, you guys talk about that or like what are some of the other things that students are learning and kind of your perspective on the difference between a computer programming education and a computer science education? So computer science focuses uh, on problem solving. Uh, understanding what nature of the problem that you're dealing with uh, uh, can, can this problem be solved at all even or and if it's solved how it can be solved and how efficient is the solution uh, so programming is just a small part of this is that if you describe the process of solving this problem uh, somebody can actually take it and program it and actually computer science you know uh, as a field existed even before computers were invented when uh, uh, you know uh, coming up with a step-by-step process to solve a problem yeah so i mean the the computer science is is just uh my my view is like you learn the algorithms you learn data structures you learn ways to organize information you learn ways to process information and that could be done with an abacus and a slide rule or that could be done with a, a pocket calculator or a computer and enough time yeah time, <laughs> yeah that's that's the good news is computers are getting more efficient at some of this stuff so that's right i mean like well students are going through um uh, on this are they going to have the like they're going to learn about um just i mean some fundamentals about how computer hardware works as well because you said one of the goals here is efficiency and like so you're going to learn some of the the building blocks right so uh and they start so there is some classes on logic and assembly and architecture and uh then comes sort of like the data structures and algorithms uh class and from that they can take a lot of uh, sort of uh, uh, upper level classes like you know networks and operating systems and these classes tend to focus more on the algorithms the protocols the design not uh, the exact implementation of you know this is a, like a, a router or a cisco router or yeah. how you operate it it's more on the protocol level uh, and similar with operating systems we talk about you know for example schedulers how do you schedule uh, memory managers right exactly so uh, what's the complexity, for example? Uh, how do you understand queues when somebody stands in a queue, when the process is in a queue, for example? How long would it take until it gets serviced? So these are sort of fundamental uh, uh, aspects of, of operating systems. Yeah, and, and so as you're, you're coming, you're going through and covering those are like on the, the networking side of things, I guess um, you're going through the OSI model and looking at how different uh, pieces of the the stack go together and then you can swap out code and protocols and all the rest of, of that over a network system correct so we talk about layering and so on uh, we don't focus on osi we focus more on like the internet architecture so students can relate to you know the network that they use uh, yeah. daily and uh, we talk about the protocols at different levels and what do they expect as an interface how do they behave so no one has to learn Apple Talk and DLSW anymore. <laughs> no, NetBuoy. No, it sounds like a TCP/IP focused now on right. the networking courses Correct. at least. Yeah. Yes. So TCP/IP is one. It's become its own standard Correct. in a way. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's always been a thing, but the, it, if going back in my education, uh, we had many different protocols at layer three, uh, and most of those are all gone now. Even layer two is in the OSI model. That's kind of like where you do Wi-Fi or Ethernet, um, and, and Ethernet basically one for the cable stuff. There used to be lots and lots and lots of things at that layer, and those are all mostly gone as well. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's and it's interesting, like, as, as, as some of these base layers become 
uh, more solidified, like you were saying on the research, that the, the network security and some of the predictive modeling and, and AI machine learning at the network security level, those are now more of a solved space and the complexity is moving up the stack into yeah, the industrial systems on the research side you're doing or in the, the networking world. It's been moving up above TCP IP into application layer protocols and, and into areas further up there. Right, especially when you talk about like software-defined networks and uh, software-defined radios and everything everything is done can be done in software. Yeah. Uh, however, the, I think the problem becomes more complex because you also cannot ignore the lower layers because they could be also uh, a vector for attacks as well. Yeah. Um, which can trigger some adaptation on the upper levels, and that's where things become sort of messy. Yeah, uh, no, for sure. Uh, it's it's an interesting one. As these lower layers get um, simplified or automated in a way, um, there's less folks that spend time studying them. So there's some deep researchers that know everything about Ethernet and all of the attacks in there. But if you're not specializing in Ethernet and Ethernet attacks, uh, then you may just know very basic things about how it works, and that's all you're ever going to study and learn. Mm -hmm. So like, uh, and this applies computer science, uh, and like those are kind of all the different implementations um, in there. You get into these specific areas where uh, all of them are getting very deep. Like I said, like is uh, reading stuff about physics or other areas as well. Now it's kind of impossible for any person to become an expert in all areas of of computer science and all areas of physics and all areas of cybersecurity. Exactly, yeah. I mean, it's cybersecurity is, is I, I have some students come to my office and, uh, and they tell me I'm interested in cybersecurity and, and I say cybersecurity is a huge area. Yeah. Are you, are you interested in cryptography? Are you interested in networks? I mean, and even if you take any of these, it's a lot of topics. Yeah, so are you guys teaching cryptography classes as well? We don't. You don't today, you know, so there you go. If you, um, let's see. We have a security class. Actually, I think this is back. We have a security class. Okay. So, um, yeah, so I guess for students that were going to learn cryptography, they would uh, at Texas State would have kind of in a uh, kind of overall security survey course. So there is a security class that's uh, very good and uh, yeah. they, they cover topics uh, in cryptography. Yeah. Now and, and so cryptography for, for those, uh, most of the time the flaws are not in, um, and this is where the cybersecurity side of it comes in, the, the algorithm usually doesn't get broken. The implementation gets broken. Um, mm -hmm. The random number generators. Do you guys cover that in operating systems at all? Uh, Those are hard. It's hard for computers to make random numbers, by the way. Right. We, we don't cover them, but the students use them in their projects, generating random numbers. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, so you end up with, with bad random numbers. You end up with uh, bad key exchanges. You end up with all, all of these things that... Uh, it's not usually the elliptical curve or whatever else is is underlying the mathematics in the algorithm. That's usually not what's getting broken. Um, so that's a whole area that yeah, you could spend your whole life in in the cryptography uh, domain it, itself. Uh, so from a a machine learning on these uh, industrial systems, it feels like we're still at the the pretty early stages. Um, uh, more uh, industrial systems are are coming online they're going from analog to digital um, and with internet of, of things with the, the effectively what that means out there in uh, listening audience it's just all of these devices that are feeding information into a, a network into the internet now uh, whether it's your your heart rate monitor or a sensor on your your automobile 
or whatever else it is, all of these the sensor costs are dropping dramatically. And as the the price to make a sensor becomes more affordable, and then as the price to transmit and store that data becomes more affordable, um, more applications are becoming opened up to where it makes sense to connect them and make them into a connected device. Uh, and and with that proliferation, we're going to see. I see forecasts saying that the number of connected devices on the internet is going to go up one or two orders of magnitude over the next decade. Yes, I yeah. think this is. I think this is is happening already. Yeah. Uh, and in terms of machine learning, these are the problems that machine learnings, uh, machine learning algorithms uh, love, right? All this data and uh, uh, understanding what's going on and and so on. Uh, there's also um, uh, sort of an area in machine learning is adversarial networks, which is about you know what, how you can make the uh, the machine learning algorithm fail by providing an input that would make the output, uh, yeah, uh, basically wrong. Yeah, and then yeah, for, for the adversarial networks, the by one of the the first use cases um, that everyone has experienced there is uh, your email spam filtering. So that's generally now if, if you're an email provider, you're using some type of um, algorithm and um, machine learning to identify uh, bad email and flag it as, as spam. And the, the people that are, are sending spam, they've built their own AI exactly. adversarial network to run against the spam filter. So... It, it's not somebody sitting there typing out emails to guess what's going to get by the spam filter. They've got a system that is sending and learning and and progressing. And, and depending on how the spam filtering set up, they might even have, and this happens in network security across not just email, but bypassing intrusion detection and intrusion prevention systems. So, Correct. Yeah, the, the, the bad guys are using adversarial networks in those areas on the, the attacker side as well. Yeah, so you've you've... You need to be running them as the, the, the blue team and training your systems. It's, this is one where lots of conversations where business folks are afraid to allow their own staff to attack their own network, uh, which scares me because if, if you're afraid to allow your own staff to attack your network, um, then you're relying on security through obscurity, which does not work out very well in the long run. That's right, yes. Nothing on the internet's obscure anymore. Not, <laughs> not when there's as many bots as there are out there um, scanning things all the time. Mm -hmm. So, um, from a, a research perspective, um, there's a bunch of specialized hardware that's coming out now for artificial intelligence chips and machine learning that's making um, these things more efficient. Uh, where do you see some of this heading? I'm not very familiar with this topic. However, right, in cool. in my in my group, we use GPUs and yeah. is doing well, uh, uh, relatively well. Yeah. Uh, so if for if for our listeners, so GPU, CPU, what does what does that mean? Uh, just to, to so back it up a level for them. Graphical process processing units are uh, they know how they know how to um, uh, quench numbers. Uh, is it right word? Quench? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Quench numbers uh, very fast uh, uh, versus your, your regular CPU, so it works on big matrices and uh, get the results quickly. Yeah, yeah. So the, the machine learning replies on a lot of of floating point calculations, mm -hmm. uh, and that's a type of numbers that computers have, and and the way that computers store numbers. That's one format for them, and the the rendering 
pixels on your computing screen um, also happens to be the same. You're doing a big matrix and just trying to decide which color pixel to put in which place also happens to be really good for doing machine learning because um, instead of rendering a pixel, you're just storing a, a number in that matrix and, and running through and crunching them very quickly, like hundreds of times faster than your regular processing chip, which is, is useful for doing memory management and scheduling and lots of other things. It's, it's a much more of a generic unit than um, specifically designed for that floating point processing. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's with the, the GPUs are, are working well for, for what you guys are, are doing. I mean, what has that allowed you to do now that because these GPUs are becoming much faster over the last decade? Like what, what's what are kind of things that you're able to do in a research level now that you couldn't do 10 years ago? So just saving time. So instead of uh, running the algorithm for weeks, it can take days or hours, uh, and we can get the results quickly and adjust the network, and we can run things in parallel uh, very fast. Um, and if you look at, for example, uh, uh, like DeepMind, the, yeah. the way they uh, they have the big architecture for, uh, for 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 Go, for example, full of GPUs and CPUs and yeah. Uh, so on, uh, at our university, we uh, we do have s these machines, and we try to keep them busy as much as we can. So you guys have your, your own kind of uh, computing cluster f to a certain extent for this, where you are running research on them on an ongoing basis. Yeah, we do have some in uh, belongs to the faculty, some belong to the department, some belong to the, the university, and uh, and many times I would go to some of my colleagues and ask them, can you. Uh, if you're not using your machine, can I use it for, for some time? Yeah. <laughs> uh, are you guys using uh, cloud computing at all in any of, of your research right now? Uh, we are. Uh, I'm using a cloud computing uh, setup with uh, with a joint project uh, with uh, Dr. Joe Jatia at UCF, uh, where we're looking at uh, VM migration as a defense. Uh, if you have malicious VM that uh, co-resides on the same physical machine with uh, some potential victims, uh, the defender in this in, in this setup would be uh, would would shuffle the the VMs across the the cloud computing platform, yeah. so to minimize the overlap between any two VMs. There you go. So you put put all the the prospective bad VMs on a machine and let them attack each other, uh, or just move them. Well, out the to problem a is that team. we don't know uh, which ones are the bad ones, which one are the good ones. Uh, so we're gonna assume that all the machines potentially could be malicious. And now we want to minimize the individual overlap between any two machines. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So that's a, uh, 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 I like that one. Yeah. So we, we use, uh, so this is a, we use a game theoretical framework to study this where the, uh, the attacker is launching new VMs with a, with a particular rate, hoping to overlap for a long period of time with one of the intended victims. But the defender is shuffling them. And of course, you don't want to shuffle all the time, but you don't want to also be static. Yeah. So this is uh, for for those uh, wondering, well, why would this matter? So there's uh, side channel attacks. So if, Correct. You, if, you can, if you can run a virtual machine on the same computer with other virtual machines for a long period of time, you can observe 
um, how that operating system hypervisor that sits below each of the virtual machines and the scheduling works. And with the way um, it responds, you can learn about other folks, other VMs that are running on that same hardware. So if you move it to a different piece of hardware, then it, it starts over again. So this is kind of the same, uh, like if you, you think about the uh, cryptography um, and you, you talk where people say an algorithm is broken, that just means that um, now it's computationally feasible to solve that in a, a period of time that's shorter than the, the value of whatever you're protecting. So same thing in this kind of that VM shuffling you want to get it off of the machine before it can get enough data to be able to reconstruct whatever it's trying to figure out. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So that's a, an interesting one where you, you, you move them around. So if you think about a physical example of this, like if you were able to sit in a restaurant and overhear 30 seconds of somebody's conversation, you might not really know what they're talking about, but if you could sit there for the whole time that they had lunch, you would absolutely know what they're talking about. So, but it's not very feasible in a restaurant for the uh, staff to move us all around every 30 seconds. But in VMs, maybe you could. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much for uh, joining us this week. We're uh, getting here towards uh, wrapping up the program. But uh, what are some of the um, other places where folks could uh, hear you talk or other faculty from Texas State or uh, ways to, to learn more about the, the programs there to see if it, it's a fit for, for them or uh, one of uh, the members of their family to, to come and, and join you? So uh, at Texas State, we have uh, many events where we invite students from high schools, middle schools, elementary schools to come to campus, visit our labs, and uh, usually my students and I prepare demos for them, uh, stuff with the robots or drones. Uh, we also go out to, uh, to job fairs. Uh, we were at Reagan High School uh, two weeks ago in the job fair, and we talked to uh, potential students explaining sort of computer science uh, and how it's different from development, for example, coding, and what we do in cybersecurity as in, in my group. Um, uh, so we have Bobcat Day. Uh, we have several events that uh, usually these are announced uh, on Texas State. Yeah, um, so go to the Texas State website, pick your favorite search engine, type in Texas State, and they've done a good job with their search engine optimization. You should find the university. If you just turned your radio on right now, you're listening to 1200 WAI. This is CyberTalk Radio, and we've been talking about the Intelligence Security Group, uh, part of the Department of Computer Science, uh, research going on at Texas State University uh, here in Texas. If you are listening to us on 1200, you could be in San Marcos. The signal goes all the way out there and then far beyond sometimes, especially at 11 o'clock at night. If you're listening to us on I heart streaming uh you could be anywhere in the world and thank you for uh tuning in there or if you've picked us up on the podcast and stuck all the way through till the end of the program thank you as well for being a listener uh, we would love to hear from you uh, we've got a website at www.cybertalkradio.com where you can give us feedback uh, we 